Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, glad to, to be back here. Jared and Anne, we have so much respect for you and for this church that continues to express the good news of Jesus Christ to this community. Yeah, believing there's hope and redemption and restoration and reconciliation. I'm like a preacher already. I get R, 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 R. <laughs> and we love that we're in relationship with you and that we can come back and be home here. Some of us are meeting for the first time. And uh, just know that Donnie and I were here for almost eight years. And Hillsborough and this church is very important to us. And many of you have just been so significant for us. So thanks that we get to come back. It's so fun. I see familiar faces. We just love you so much. <sighs> well, I was, uh, as Jared said, I, we have our own church in Cottage Grove. And just before the 9 a.m. service, we have a 9 a.m. and 11, 11 a.m. like you guys, I got a text message from the guy who I've put in charge. And he wrote this, oh, my goodness, dot, 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 I wish you were here. So I'm feeling very important in this moment. So I call and, hey, how's it going? And he's like, why are you calling me? And I was like, well, you said that you wish I was there. Is there some problem that I can be of assistance for? He's like, no, I just, we're having so much fun. I just wish you were here with us. <laughs> so I'm really not that important. And I... I get that and accept that, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope they're having a great time this morning as well, yeah. So have you ever been in a place where you didn't have what you needed? Yeah, of course you have. Yeah, we've, we've been in moments where we didn't have uh, or we needed. We don't have what seems to be needed right there, where... A uh, story comes to mind of my own experience with this, and you'll identify with this a little bit, I'm sure. So I was out for a Saturday afternoon run. Yeah, I know. Some of you are like, yes, I thought you were a marathon runner. Yeah, just <laughs> looking at you. Yeah. <clears throat> but I enjoy running. It's fun for me. It's therapeutic. I had uh, my earphones in. I was listening to music, just enjoying the beautiful neighborhoods of Cottage Grove. And I come around the corner, and suddenly I was in need of a weapon. This large, snarling pit bull, not on a leash, is charging at me, barking, obviously very upset that I even exist. <laughs> pit bulls are ugly creatures. If you're a pit bull owner, your creature is ugly. So... <laughs> I mean, it's just, people are leaving all over the place. I don't, you know. <laughs> so it's charging at me, and I'm suddenly thinking, I don't have what I need. Where is my 45 Magnum? And it comes running at me, and so I come to a screeching halt, because I'm screaming fast when I'm running, right? <laughs> And I'm on this cement with, like, loose gravel over the top of it. So as I stop, I slip, and I'm falling on my backside. This pit bull is bearing down, so I quickly get up. Quick is a relative term when you're 6'4", 200-plus pounds. But I got up and faced the pit bull and did what all of us would do. And that pit bull turned around and ran away. 
<laughs> You're very impressed. <clears throat> but can you imagine with me the moment of my need there? Total deficit, desperation. I don't have what is needed here. The adrenaline, the surge. And you're probably thinking about things and areas and circumstances in your own life. Yeah. Well, adrenaline is surging through me in this moment, and I'm going to run the fastest run that I've ever run, you know. But I'm thinking, before I go on with my run, the owner needs to know about this. So I look around, and I don't see anyone. So I just shout indiscriminately to whoever's listening, dogs need to be on leashes, you know. <laughs> then went on with my run. Can you imagine observing this from far away? This is, yeah. <laughs> vulnerable runners out here. <laughs> when we think of need, we, we tend to think of like provision and food and shelter, water, those things that are basic needs for us. And that could be where you're at this morning. That's a question in your mind, provision for you or your family. And I want to acknowledge that and recognize that that's a very felt thing and very important and assure you that God sees you in your place of need. And these things are important. But this morning, I want to talk about some other needs that are so important to us and to our experience. The first is this. You're here on a Sunday morning, and there's a spiritual need that you have. Some of you might be, for the first time, engaging with this church experience, and it's probably coming from that sense of there's something my relationship with God. Who? What is this? And you're on that journey extremely important questions for you to be asked. And there's this need, and there might be this gap of, has God provided what is needed for me to move to the next step with me? Very important questions to be asking. Others of us in here have, have needs, they're felt needs, relational needs, husbands and wives, and maybe there's a point in your marriage where there's, there's disconnect or there's stress that's caused by uh, outside forces or internal pressure and you're dynamic and there's a need and there's that sense of, I'm here, I want to get there. Do I have, has God given me what I need? Will he provide? Others of us in parent-child relationships and the child is entering a, a new phase of, of life and you're wondering, do I have what it takes? Has God given me what is needed for this next stage? And these are questions that, that we carry. These are the normal things of life. And my thought is this morning that God does have what is needed for every one of us. As a matter of fact, I would say this, and it's an audacious statement, that in God's kingdom, his kingdom, mean his way of doing things, his interaction with the world, that we can tap into his ways and means that there is no lack, that we lack nothing that is needed. And as I say that, it's hitting some of you sideways because you're recognizing there's a large gap between what outcome I see that needs to take place and what my current provision is. And so you're wondering, what do you mean there's no lack? There's lack right now. But for us to begin to understand some of God's provision for us, we have to look in look into God's word, into his scriptures to be able to see how it is that he provides, which is often very different from the ways that we think we should be provided for. 
I think all of us really enjoy new and shiny and bright and powerful and best and current, don't we? Yeah. The iPad mini came out this last week. And I thought, God, (laughs) thank you for providing for me. This is meeting my deep need for a newfangled gadget. And then I read, and I can't remember, it's first or second Timothy in, uh, in my journaling this last week. <laughs> and and uh, Paul was urging young Timothy to be content in all things. And if you have food and shelter, that's enough. I was like, Jesus, please stop ruining my fantasies. <laughs> we like best and new and brightest. But God's provision for us is sometimes different. For us to understand, we can read a passage in 1 Corinthians, and Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, and some of us would really identify with this rabble that he's writing to. They're wildly immoral people. He's constantly having to bring them back to a place of morality and treating their bodies and one another with love and respect and purity. When they would gather together, they, they were messed up. There was all kinds of divisions. They didn't know how to get along. They would participate in communion and all sorts of uh, distorted ways. Some were getting drunk on wine. Some others weren't even getting what was needed. Can you imagine if our gatherings were like this? There was no order. These people were just a mess. And Paul would write to them because he loved them, and he was wanting for God's grace and mercy and his ways to really become home within their lives and to, for them to be unified. And at the beginning of this letter that he writes to these people, he's reminding them of how God has provided. Because some of these people had begun to do what we naturally do. We're looking at the best, the brightest, the shiny. They were looking at these particular leaders and identifying first with the leaders, not with the humble Jesus that was sent for their provision. So he's correcting them, and he makes a couple of statements that will help clarify how God provides for us this morning. Let's read this together in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. When we start to look in God's word and start to begin, and begin to understand how he works and navigates and provides and meets these needs, it stands in contrast to some of how humanity tends to think those needs will be met. So the principle this morning for us is this, that God provides for us in ridiculous, simple, outdated, or small ways. And I find great hope in this statement because me always looking for the big and bright and shiny and powerful and best often leaves me feeling disappointed. The quick fix, the cure, that this is going to be it. Often I can walk away disappointed. But when I start to navigate and embrace his provision for me, wow. I'll tell you a story of how this has worked for us, for me, an ongoing need that I have. John is the name of one of the guys in our church, and uh, John is in his 60s. John is schizophrenic, and uh, he's barely able to navigate life functionally. John uh, often, oh, actually, 
after every service, is one of the first to greet me and has something to say to me. Largely, it's positive, but I realize that with John, I'm meeting a social need that cannot be met. He's unable to have be met by other people in normal situations. So John and I have this ongoing relationship. His marriage is often in trouble, and John goes to our church. <clears throat> well, one day I was driving into uh, our church parking lot, and I was pulling into a parking space, and John is at the church. And John, as I'm pulling into the parking space, makes his way aggressively, storming towards my car. I could tell he's upset. I'm on the phone, hands-free, of course. <laughs> Some of you need to hear that. <laughs> Cheaters, you know. I pull in. I'm on the phone. He opens my car door for me. And this is one of these moments, I have them periodically, where I say, God, why am I a pastor? <laughs> and why do I keep forgetting my gun? You know, that's another, yeah. <laughs> So I stand up and go, Ooh! no, I didn't do that. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. <laughs> Works with the pit bull. It didn't, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? It may have worked there too. I don't know. <laughs> but I say, John, let me finish this phone call. So he walks across the parking lot. He's pacing and he's obviously agitated. So I quickly finish my phone call. I, with some hesitation, <laughs> get out of the car. And I walk towards John and, John, how can I help you? He says, you really like that technology stuff, don't you? I'm like, is that a question? Is that a statement? Is that an accusation? You know, this is what I'm thinking. John, what's going on? He goes, do you know how depersonalizing that is? Wow, whoa, whoa. And so I, I don't even know what to say, but I'm feeling, I mean, you could probably feel, I'm feeling a little angry little like what is going on this is from left field then he says this maybe you ought to listen to the whiners around here now when you become a pastor you learn a lot of things one that there are some people that whine and some people that don't and you really like the ones that don't whine <laughs> i'll let you self-identify <laughs> So then he's like, you know, stepping on something, you know, even more personal for me. The wine, listen to the whiners, really? I said, is there, is there a complaint that you have? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, what have I done or not done? And he said, have you ever heard of, if you're okay, I'm okay? And I'm thinking, okay, technology, this, uh, this whole thing of whiners, if you're okay, I do not know where you're, I said, I said, John, no, please explain what, how can I help you? And he says, if you're okay, I'm okay, means this. If somebody's secure and confident and all put together like you is in a room and then somebody that's broken and is hurting comes into that room, they see that you're okay. So they can't be broken, so they put up, they project to you that they're okay too when they're really not. And I was just like, Holy Spirit, you are speaking to me. You are speaking something deeply to me right now. Because we have committed ourselves to be a church that welcomes the hurting and the broken. 
And a part of how we do that is we, are, we make certain that the people who are on stage walk in humility and transparency so that people that are broken and hurting don't feel ostracized different or in a different, on a different playing field than we all are on. The value for us is humility, that we walk in that way. And suddenly I'm realizing, Holy Spirit, you're speaking something to me right now. You're providing something that I need right now. He goes on, he goes, this this last Sunday you said you don't have time for the whiners. And I, I don't know what I had said, but his experience had been that I'm put together, funny, smart, good looking, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is my wife, Danya, thank you. Wanted you all to make sure that wasn't just some girl, you know. <laughs> thank you. But his experience as someone that was broken the previous Sunday, he did not feel okay to be broken because of my, what he perceived to be, arrogant stance on the stage. So we unpacked that a little bit, and he said, you know, I lost my job last week. That was a long, sought for and prayed for job opportunity, and he only lasted a couple weeks in it. Suddenly, I'm recognizing deeper, bigger things that are happening here. So I, I said, John, let's talk about that. How are you? What's going on? And after a conversation, he was calmed down. I was calmed down. I said, can we pray together? He said, yeah. So I thought it would be one of these prayers that us pastors often do that I pray and the other person listens. So I pray and I come to the close and then he, he jumps in and he goes, Father, because you know I can't say things in the way that I need to. I'm sorry for that. And he concluded his prayer. And See, I know some of John's story, and I know that he fought in Vietnam, and he came back with post-traumatic stress disorder. He's schizophrenic. His family still will not accept, reject, or extend affirmation or approval towards him. And I said, John, can I hug you? So he hugged. He wears a Carhartt jacket. I thought, this is the manliest hug I've ever had. (laughs) Several days later, he, he let me know. He said, that hug, thank you so much. He and his wife have let me speak into his life, you know, since then, and He's a great part of our church. But for us this morning, do you see that God was providing for me in a way that was ridiculous, simple, small? His insight to me, I would have paid a church consultant good money to give me that feedback. Really good money. But I wouldn't have hired somebody that was schizophrenic. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. God's provision for us is unlikely. And when I tell that story, it sounds a lot like the Bible. God's chosen people, the Israelites, who he was building a relationship with, were enslaved to the Egyptians under the rule of Pharaoh, one of the most powerful people in the world, and God needed them to be freed so he could continue to build a relationship with them teach them his ways and his heart and his love. 
so that eventually the person of Jesus Christ could be born and we can all be saved as a result. God needed a deliverer. And we would think, what powerful person can you bring in? What army can you raise up? And God went to the desert and found a stuttering shepherd and said, Moses, deliver my people. Ridiculous, simple, outdated, small, what, a shepherd? He was like 80 years old. And Moses went before the powerful king, Pharaoh, and said, God says, let my people go. And we know the story. They were free. Later in the history of the people of Israel, the Israelites were being oppressed by a pagan people known as the Philistines. And there was a giant, Goliath, who was the picture, the symbol of oppression. And God needed his people to be freed from that oppression, and so he chose David, the youngest, small, shepherd boy with a slingshot. My son got a slingshot, by the way, recently. I was like, oh, cute, a slingshot. We went and shot in the backyard. We have a fairly large backyard, and I thought that would be safe. So I'm like, I mean, it was like embedding into trees, kind of, you know. It's like, son, don't shoot that, ever, you know. But God used small, ridiculous, not the way that we would do it, to provide for his needs. And the best picture of this is the person of Jesus. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, and you don't even have to be a Christian to agree that Jesus absolutely revolutionized history. We frame our whole chronology around the life of Jesus, how we remember history, because it's been so pivotal. And Jesus was born as a Jew 2,000 years ago. The Jews were oppressed by the Romans, ruled by the Romans. The, their history is this, they kept being ran over by one country and the next, taken to captivity, brought in. And then the Jews, at just the right time in history, from God's perspective and how he provides, were totally oppressed, had no political power, had no way to overcome and to overthrow. And God said, oh, this is the perfect time to send my son. Oh, and I'd like him to be a poor carpenter because I'm going to show a totally radical, non-intuitive way of my provision for humanity. And my provision is gonna revolutionize the world. And so, God, so Jesus was born to a poor family and he had no political friends. He had no campaign rally. Jesus in 01. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have any of that kind of resource, the kind of resource that we really feel that we need. And Jesus, at the age of 30, began preaching and teaching and sowing this way of the kingdom. The rest of the story is those who followed his ways and applied his ways of provision to their own lives radically changed the world. Radically. 
We value races and women because of Jesus. We value all people because of Jesus. No other religious or cultural system produced that God kind of love that Jesus has brought along, changed the world. And so for us and the needs in our lives that we, were, were, where we see the tension, we should really look at how Jesus told to, was taught us, his followers, to seek his provision, what that looked like. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we see a simple phrase that we want to unpack here for a couple minutes that will help us to align ourselves with the way that God wants to provide for the needs in our lives. This is Matthew 4, 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. There's two things that I want to unpack there. The first is this. Jesus said, repent of your sins. This is what he's preaching. And remember, he's preaching to these, these Jews, the people that were oppressed and used to living under oppression, and these people who expected at some point God would vindicate them and free them. And so they had this expectation. Then Jesus starts preaching, and this is what he says. He says, repent of your sins. And they would have all put their hands on their hips and said, repent of our sins? What about Rome? Shouldn't they repent of their sins? As a matter of fact, these people would have loved it if Jesus would have stood up and said, Caesar, was that impressive? Is that, yeah, that was supposed to be impressive. <laughs> Caesar, your day of retribution has come. Thou hast sinned against almighty God. Caesar, repent. They would have been like, yeah, woohoo, Jesus in 01, yeah. We can develop a lot of energy and passion for those people, can't we? Those people. Repent. She says, no, you. My way is going to start with you and me. Repent of your sins. Move away. And what Jesus was inviting them to is, you've gone along this way but I'm inviting you to repent towards my way so that you can receive my provision. To move from the places and the attitudes and the mindsets in life that are going this way counter to where his provision is by repenting and turning away to receive. This is what Jesus is inviting us to. A couple of weeks ago, we had a memorial service at our church a man on our council, great man. His wife passed away from cancer too early. She was just an amazing woman. She loved God, had incredible faith. And we prayed and just loved them through the sickness. And a few weeks ago, she went to be with Jesus. And they said, we want to have a celebration of life, just to celebrate who she was. And I said, of course. And they said, we would like her stepson to preach at the, at the memorial. I said, oh, that sounds fantastic. And I don't know her stepson. So she, 
So we remembered her and we were worshiping together and the room was just packed with people. And then her stepson gets up and he preaches and he preaches the gospel so clearly. He did it so well. He was just warm and inviting. And then at the end of the service, I invited anybody who wasn't a follower of Jesus to follow. A couple of days later, we learned that a person had given their life to Jesus at that memorial service. I just thought, oh, this is great. Then I learned more about this woman's stepson. His name is John. And I learned that he had spent several years in prison. And while he was in prison, his father, who's on our council, chose to visit him as he was moved around the state penitentiary system in Oregon and continued to encourage him and love them and tell him about Jesus. That man, while in prison, began to repent, moving away from what he had embraced, crime and drugs, and moving towards God's way. And then he was able to stand up and express the gospel. Simple acts of repentance can radically revolutionize our lives and subsequently history. Simple. Isn't it just sound, I mean, even the word repent, oh, that's like an old-fashioned religious word, Isaac. It's outdated. That's so not today. It's so 1961, <laughs> or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> Many of you, young faces, that's so 1998, you know, whatever. <laughs> but there's so much power in this. Think of it this way. For those of you who are experiencing a relational disconnect in your family or close loved one, you need to have a holy waffle moment. I'll explain. Don't worry. This is an insider language. This is a new concept. <laughs> I'm going my way. My loved one, I need to engage in a new way. And so I repent from my selfishness, maybe in the morning, and I choose to make waffles. Trust the waffle light. You've made waffles and the light seems like it's never going to turn. Has anybody done this? It's just, just me. The previous service were waffle makers. You guys are not waffle makers. You have to trust the light because if you, you're like, it must be done by now. They're going to burn. There must be. And then you open it. It's like gooey. Oh, dang it. Trust the waffle light. Make waffles. Turning from your selfishness and then presenting those hopefully not gooey, waffles, and having a moment of reconciliation, of relationship. You see how simple this is? Sometimes we think the big magic uh, fix, outside, new book to read, those things can be important and helpful. But the simple act of repentance, having a holy waffle moment, can change your life and change history. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the simple stuff that Jesus is teaching us to do, daily walking in this. He then says, repent of your sins. Turn to God, for the kingdom is at hand. Now, these people, they describe themselves as God's chosen people. And so saying turn to God, they've been like, yeah, we're God's people. But there were three uh, 
three groupings that they tended to identify with where they were turning to for hope. The first was the Essenes. The Essenes were, were this group that pretty much said, okay, we've got to preserve Jewish culture. We've got to preserve the scripture. And so in order to do those things, we kind of need to hide and withdraw and pull back from culture and just kind of hope it all goes away. And some of us Christians participate with that same kind of hiding we're really afraid of the world, afraid of the culture, afraid of where God has placed us. As if he created all of history and then created you and said, I'm going to put you right there. And then says, now hide, hide, get away. No, not do, don't, oh, no. <laughs> God has not asked us to hide from culture, but to participate with redeeming culture. Yeah, for some of us, that's where we're at. Jesus is saying, turn to God, not to this particular way of thinking. The second group were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the kind of the do-gooders. They were kind of the morality police of the day. Are you behaving just like God said that you should? And they, their belief, their hope was that as soon as we're all behaving, you're not behaving. Did you go to church last week? I learned from a woman this last week that she grew up in a church, and they said, if you come to church on Sundays, you love your, or Sunday morning, you love your church. If you go to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night, you love your pastor. If you go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, you love God. Some of you are like, what about for those of us who attend church once every six weeks? What does that mean? <laughs> Pharisees were kind of these morality, are you doing it just so police? Right? And this is a hope, a false hope that we can, we can buy into. That we just think if, we, if everybody would just behave right. And Jesus is saying, you know, don't put your hope in that. Put your faith and hope and trust in God. Morality isn't the end of the story. That's just an outcome of your faith relationship because it's not about your works, by the way. It's about his perfect work and you doing the simple work of believing. That sounds simple. Yeah. The third group were the zealots. And I think we would all enjoy being around the zealots. They'd get us fired up and move to action pretty quickly. Their belief was that we just need to get enough people and enough swords and enough weapons and then have some figure, we'll call him the Messiah, and then we'll overthrow Rome and all of these oppressors. Those are sword noises. Yeah. And so there were some that were buying into this hope. And Jesus would have addressed them and said, turn to God, not in your hope of power being pressed down. And in our political climate that we're in right now, this is the hope that we, as who are following Jesus, we can begin to ascribe to you. Think that if we can have the power from on top, we can impress the kingdom ways onto everybody else. And if they would just do it. But Jesus wasn't interested in developing or gaining political power at all. It was the foolishness of the world, Paul says. Jesus came and gave birth and life to this new way of coming from under and influencing and radically changing all of history. But the hope isn't in the power systems of our day. Jesus said, turn to God. Now, the rest of the story is this. His followers who began to adopt his teaching and follow in his ways 
to do the work of believing in him who God sent, to do the work of working in the ways of his teaching. And you can learn more about his radical teaching in the following chapters, Matthew 4, 5, and 6. <laughs> they changed the world because God provided exactly what the world needed in very simple, simple ways. See, you, like me, would struggle naming the powerful political figures of that day. We could probably come up with a couple because of the Christmas story. Herod and Caesar Augustus. We're like, oh yeah, it's Christmas, yeah. Those guys were in rule, yeah. <laughs> and how many Herods do you know today? How many Augustuses? Maybe a few. But how many Peters do you know? How many Matthews do you know? How many Jameses do you know? How many Johns do you know? These are the names of these regular Joes and Schmoes like you and me who began to adopt this simple way and they revolutionized the world. See, God is providing for what is needed for us. God is doing that in using regular people like you and me, not from on top, but from underneath to provide for our families and our lives the things that are so important, meeting these spiritual needs. It's all culminated in terms of this picture of humility by Jesus dying a sinner's death on the cross, being perfect, unjustly killed, and then rising from the grave three days later, conquering sin, hell, death, and the grave so that we can be redeemed and so we can adopt his way of humility to change the world. His simple ways of changing the world. That's the hope that we get to live in and we get to participate in this together. I'm excited that your church like mine is learning these things so we continue to have dramatic influences on our communities here, near, and far around the world. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you and we'll draw to a close. Father.